Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, shalom, holy friends. We hope you had a wonderful Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Shmini Atzeret, Simcha, Torah, and everything else you may have celebrated in recent weeks. I don't know a lot of things, but one of the things I think I know is that you've never been to a class called Shalom Aleichem, a model for working with development trauma. And that's a great thing because um, we all have new things to learn from a master teacher, just an amazing topic and an amazing person and educator. And I want to tell you about just briefly about Rabbi Lisa Goldstein, who is a teacher, consultant, and certified practitioner of NARM, a modality of healing complex trauma. She teaches a wide variety of online courses with an emphasis on spiritual wisdom, prayer and meditation, and the teachings of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. She also works one-on-one to support people in their journeys of healing and spiritual growth. Educated at Brown University and Hebrew Union College, Rabbi Goldstein has almost 25 years of executive experience serving as the director of Hillel of San Diego and the executive director of the Institute for Jewish Jewish Spirituality. She's a faculty member for Jewish Pedagogies of Wellbeing at M2, M Squared, a research program for master educators, and has helped create and implement online learning programs, including self-paced, highly produced courses. She lives in New York City with her husband, Igal Harmelin, and their foster son, Seydu, and on a personal note, I have been a student uh, and friend of Rabbi Lisa Goldstein for a few decades now, um, having gone on a rabbinic delegation to Senegal um, and continue to be inspired by her and learn from her from afar and sometimes up close. So thank you for being here and I'll pass it over to you. Thank you so much, Shmuley. I actually think we first met Shmuley on the Hillel board when you were a college student, which is kind of amazing <laughs> and it's just um, such a zuchut to it's such a privilege to be with you and also to follow your extraordinary um, career from afar as a great um, and from up close sometimes um, as a great admirer so and I also just want to say hello to everyone else I see I have some really good friends here some of whom I haven't seen for quite a while and there's some of you who, um, who I don't know but I'm hoping that we will get a chance to um, converse and talk and um, and do sort of this little exploration um, about how Shalom Aleichem, um, this song that so many of us are familiar with, is actually kind of an amazing model for working with developmental trauma. So um, I'm going to do this first part with a, um, a PowerPoint. So let me pull it up here. There we go. Okay. Can everyone see that? All right. So um, so I wanted to start just by making sure that we're on the same page about this um, pretty extraordinary um, song that we, that we sing um, on Shabbat evening. So Shalom Aleichem um, is based on the Talmud. It comes from um, Shabbat and it has this image of someone coming home from synagogue on a Friday night and these two angels who accompany them home. And if everything is all set and everything is peaceful and there's a real sense of family closeness and, um, 
and everything is ready to welcome Shabbat, then the good angel says, let it be so the next Shabbat too. And the other angel has to say, so be it. Amen. But if everything is a mess and the house isn't clean and food isn't prepared and everybody's arguing with each other and like it's a really sort of terrible situation, then the bad angel says, may it be so next Shabbat also. And the good angel has to say, okay, so be it. So we are welcoming in these angels um, through this um, very um, beautiful and repetitive um, chant, um, welcoming them in, asking for their, their blessings of peace, that we're looking for peace. We want to live in an environment, in a context of, of peace, of wholeness, of goodness, of well-being, of being well-fed and of um, happy to be together. And so the theme of peace goes through the entire song. And so first we say, Shalom Aleichem, peace be upon you, O ministering angels, the angels who are messengers of the Most High. Um, the traditional language is, you know, the sexist language of, of kingship, but there's actually something very powerful about using that metaphor, which is pointing towards power, like the greatest power of the universe. This, that these angels are messengers of that tremendous power of the blessed Holy One. And then we're inviting the angels in, come in in peace, like enter into our space in peace. And then we say, bless me with peace. And then we can say, okay, you can leave now. And so you can depart in peace. And so what I think is kind of interesting about this is that first of all, well, like what what are these angels other than sort of this charming story um, from the Talmud? Like, what does that actually mean that there are angels that might come to our home? Like, I'm personally not so aware of any like angelic beings like coming into my home on a Friday night, even though I'm evoking them. Um, and also, why are we asking them to leave? What is that about? Like, why do we want them to like, OK, I get come in, bless me with peace. But but what is it about about leaving? So. Um, to answer that, we want to take a look at um, a little bit into the world of Jewish mysticism um, and to say that, um, that angels um, have different forms. There's different ways of talking about angels. One of the places that we see this in, um, for example, in our liturgy in El Adon, which is one of the big, um, uh, it's a it's a piyut, a liturgical poem that's part of the Shabbat morning liturgy, and it talks about Srafim and Ofanim and Chayot Kodesh. So there's all different kinds of names of angels, different kinds of these um, beings that exist in different realms. So um, if we're going to look at then the, the Jewish mystical world that talks about these four worlds, which is really just about talking about four different aspects of experience. So the bottom level of experience is the world of asiyah, the world of making. And this is the physical world. It's the world of the body. It's the world of action. It's the world of doing. It's the place that our culture has the greatest emphasis on, the world of doing, of accomplishing, of being in our bodies. The next level up, well, I don't know if it's really up. That might be the next level in. Um, is the world of Yitzhirah, which is the world of formation. And this is actually the world of emotions. So as we experience um, the world through our emotions, we're living in that, um, the realm 
of Yetzirah. The next um, level of experience is Bri'ah, which means creation. And this is the world of the mind. This is the world of the intellect. This is the world of our thoughts. This is the world of ideas. This is the world of um, thinking about things. And then finally, the, um, the highest or the deepest world is called Atzilut. Atzilut, for those of you who are familiar with um, Hebrew, the root of it is, is etzel. It's like right up against, right next to um, divinity itself. So this is sort of like the place of where divinity starts emanating out. And it's the world of absolute oneness, where there's not a lot of distinction or separateness or individuation. It's the world of profound oneness. And another way of talking about that is the world of the soul. So what's interesting is that each of these, each of these um, worlds has a different kind of angel that inhabits it. And the word that's used for angel in Shalom Aleichem is malach. Malach means messenger. And the world of the malachim, of the messengers, is the world of Yitzirah. It's the world of the emotions. Now, that, I think, is super, super interesting. Because what it's saying, then, is um, that our emotions are... We can think of our emotions as angelic messengers. And this is a place where I think Jewish mysticism and contemporary psychology really overlap with each other. Because one of the ways that we really um, can experience emotions, one of the ways that we can think about emotions is that our emotions have messages for us. And the messages for us are really, really important about what our needs are, how, how peaceful we feel in the world, how, um, how, like, how our well-being is actually unfolding or not unfolding. And, um, and the, the way that we know that often is through our emotions. Now, I have to say that often it's extremely difficult to connect into our emotions. And um, I think the biggest obstacle that stands between us and those angelic messages that come to us um, is, um, is trauma. So, and I wanted to say one other piece about this, which is that um, it has to do with this world of Atzilut, that, um, that oneness in the mystical tradition, another way of thinking about it is the life force itself. The life force itself that is like spinning out, you can see the picture from the new, um, from the new telescope, you know, that's out in space, the Webb telescope that looks at that space in these new amazing ways, that the universe unfolding out through time is another way of thinking about, um, another sort of mystical way of connecting in with divinity itself. And so that flows through us that communicates to us through our emotions. And the thing that gets in the way of us really hearing those messages um, is trauma. So, um, so let's turn a little bit into the world of trauma. And I wanna say that um, the, um, the education that I've had in the world of trauma is through this um, approach that's called NARM, N-A-R-M, 
which stands for Neuroaffective Relational Model. Um, that's a mouthful. We can talk later if you're interested in what that actually means. <clears throat> it's, a, um, it's a process that was developed by Lawrence Heller. And at the bottom of this slide, there's this um, book that just came out with Larry Heller and Brad Kammer, who's a senior trainer of NARMS. It's called The Practical Guide for Healing Developmental Trauma. And this is really where I've received my education about trauma um, primarily. And um, a lot of what I'm going to be sharing with you is derived from them. So first of all, I just want to say there are two different ways that we talk about trauma. And most of the time when we talk about trauma, if people know about it, we're familiar a little bit with PTSD, with post-traumatic stress disorder. And PTSD is something that happens um, when we've experienced a particular kind of what we call shock trauma. So shock trauma is when there's been a terrible event that's happened to us. And um, a car accident, an event of violence, um, like something that's been terrible, and uh, but it's a particular, um, uh, it's a particular event that happened, and then it's over. But what happens with trauma is that the body doesn't actually know that the event is over, and what happens is fear gets frozen in the body in particular ways. There's a lot of amazing literature about this. Um, the, the Body Keeps the Score is one of the most important books about this that really was one of the first books that opened up this idea of um, how, the, the, how fear stays in the body, in the nervous system, and then causes particular symptoms such as re-experiencing the trauma, you know, like flashbacks or nightmares, avoidance behaviors, like really trying to protect ourselves, and sort of this ongoing sense of threat where we don't ever really feel safe. So those are some of the symptoms of shock trauma where you can feel the fear that's stuck in the body. Complex trauma, on the other hand, um, or CPTSD, is different. So complex trauma takes place over a longer period of time. And instead of, um, instead of having it be one event that then has fear frozen in the body, is something that happens over a longer period of time. And instead of fear, it's about shame, where we feel it's more relationally based. It has to do with feeling bad about who we are and all the ways that we then try and compensate or, or create strategies around how to deal with that sense of shame. And we're going to get more into this in just a moment. But in a, so, and complex trauma. In, in addition to some of the, the symptoms of, of um, shock trauma also include interpersonal difficulties where our relationships don't work as well as we would like them to, a negative self-concept, meaning that we feel terrible about ourselves. We even may hate ourselves on a particular, um, on a particular level and affect dysregulation, which means that we don't have control over our emotions, that our emotions control us. <clears throat> and not just fear, but emotions such as anger um, and, and sadness, depression, like other kinds, of, other kinds of things like that. So I wanted to say a few words about optimal um, development as we start exploring a little bit about what, what um, developmental trauma then might look like. Um, to say that um, 
Well, so first of all, developmental trauma looks a little bit different at different stages, depending on when our basic needs are not met. Um, but optimal development means that we come into this world a vulnerable child who is 100% dependent on our environment to take care of us, whether that's our parents or whether that's the family that we're born into or the larger environment. Um, and if everything goes according to plan, um, which unfortunately it rarely does, um, we go through different developmental stages of coming into a full human being that feels connected to ourselves and to others. We have the capacity to connect with ourselves and with others, to be able to articulate what we need in this world, to be able to, um, um, to, be able to trust the, that the world around us is okay and it's safe and that we can flourish in it, that we have a sense of autonomy in ourselves, that we can determine for ourselves the kind of person that we wanna be, and that we can open our hearts towards love and eventually into a sexual or intimate relationship that is supportive and loving and mutual and that we can really come into our fullness. In fact, it could even be sort of that shalom that we are talking about asking the angels to bless us with on Shabbat. Um, and in fact, I think often Shabbat is, is sort of a, um, is a model to be held up as to what might optimal development look like if it were possible. When a child is born, the first developmental task that a child has to do is to come into life as an embodied human being, to come into this existence in a body and to be able to connect with themselves and with their environment. But unfortunately, all kinds of terrible things can get in the way. And these are just some of the, um, the things that can happen that we call environmental failure that prevent this developmental stage from happening. So I just wanna say a few words about some of these things. So um, intergenerational trauma is something that I think is particularly relevant to the Jewish community, that um, both in terms of biologically and environmental impact. So for example, um, you may be familiar with some of the work of um, Rachel Yehuda, who started out studying um, what happens in, um, it, what, what happens genetically with children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors, and, and really is one of the people who's developing this new field of epigenetics that, and this is like a little bit beyond my understanding as like, I'm a rabbi, I'm not a biologist, but the way that I understand is that, that this, there's something about the way that our stress hormones are turned off and on, and the way that that gets, the, our genetics um, allow the stress hormones to be turned on or off in subsequent generations that then have a significant impact on stress in the body and our ability to metabolize it or not metabolize it. So already just coming in and being born with some of these, um, these inheritances is already significant. 
And of course, if there is intergenerational trauma, that means that parents, parents can only give what they've learned themselves. And so if they were not raised in an environment of optimal development, where they were really well taken care of and could go through all these stages, there's only so much that they can do, can offer for their children. I just want to say at this point, and this is a really, really important point, that um, there are the, 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 one of the things that's so exciting about this field of trauma healing is that there are interventions that can be made. So this, this isn't like, okay, you, you're the child of a Holocaust survivor, and that means you're doomed to have a, a, an environmental failure for the rest of your life. We actually know that that's not true. There is um, both um, through our nervous systems and through the way that we, what we believe about ourselves, we can make adjustments to come to a place of, of greater healing, um, even with some of the, um, the biological things that are, that we inherit. So, um, so some of these other things that you can see on the page, you can see how they might have a significant impact on a child whose, whose job it is, is to connect with themselves and with others. Let's say it's a difficult birth, and that's not blaming anybody, right? Difficult births happen as part of the human experience. It's nobody's fault. But the child's experience of that is one of, oh my gosh, I'm coming into this body, but it's painful to come into this body. And I don't know what I'm like, I'm, I, I, I want to connect, but I can't connect. And, and so the child has to adjust to that in a particular way. If there's a parent that is um, that's missing, and again, not blaming anyone, you know, we know parents die, or parents are in prison, or all parents are ill. Whatever happens to happen, um, that for very very good reasons that the child doesn't get the ongoing attention um, and and response to the needs that the child might have, um, but it has an impact on the child just as it has on the rest of the family. Um, so, um, I don't think I'll talk about all of these different things, but you can see how in each of these things, then this, it makes it more difficult for the child to, um, to be able to thrive. So this is, um, this is a quote by, um, Gabor Mate, who's also very, um, significant in this emerging trauma healing field where he says that people have two basic needs, like children have two basic needs. And those needs are attachment and authenticity. And if when authenticity threatens attachment, attachment trumps authenticity every time. Okay, so what does that mean? So let's say that I am a newborn baby and um, I, um, Let's say, um, let's say it was I had a really difficult birth. Actually, I'll use it. So I'll use my own example, actually. So when I was born, my mother had a really difficult time and I was delivered with forceps. And I actually have a, a scratch on my eye that whenever I go to the eye doctor, the eye doctor is like, ooh, where did you get that? And I say, okay, so when I was born, that happened. So um, the, a child has like the, the life force in a child Will ask that will the child will protest when something is is not um, is not according to their needs, 
Usually that's crying. Usually that's like some kind of a, of a protest. If that protest is not met, then that leads the child to a place of, of rage. And if the rage is not responded to, then the child can go into a place of grief and just shutting down a particular part of their, of their desire to connect. It's too much for the nervous system. And the child has to 100% depend on the environment to take care of them. That's this attachment. The child is 100% dependent on that. So this leads to this really impossible dilemma. I need to connect with my, to myself and others, but it's too painful to. So in that case, the attachment connecting is going to, to take precedence over my own feelings of rage, of grief, of protest, of all the things that are wrong. And so I start shutting down. I start being resigned. This is just the way that life is. This is this, is this life that I am coming into. The other thing that children do in this situation that we're programmed to do because we are dependent on the attachment is that we internalize and we personalize the situation around us. So if the situation around me is bad, what the child internalizes is I must be bad. The child doesn't have the words or, the, or anything to be able to say, oh, this is just a bad situation. It's a bad situation that I had to be delivered with forceps. The child unconsciously in the nervous system says, I'm the one who's bad. I somehow don't deserve to be part of this life. I did something, you know, obviously there's no words for this with an infant, but an infant will internalize this anyway and start shaming themselves as a way of protecting that attachment connection. It's not the environment that's bad. It's not the parent that's bad. It's not the world that's bad. I'm bad. And this is the shame that is indicative of this developmental trauma. And, um, and the shame is a terrible thing, but it's also a life-saving strategy. It is a life saving strategy because it allows the child to keep that attachment to the environment which, which they need to survive. And so as we get older, we develop particular strategies that are based on, these, on this shame that we feel. So I'm going to give you a couple of examples. So these are things that we believe about ourselves or about the world that are based on this shame. And of course, the flip side of shame is pride. So sometimes that happens too. So the shame is, I never really belong anywhere. I'm the one who's always on the outside. Like nobody really cares about me. I'm not really, I, I don't really belong. Or on the flip side, well, forget all of you. I don't wanna be around you anyway. I'm just gonna take, I'm gonna sit here with my, with my books, with my, um, with myself, and I'm just going to do things on my own. And I think this is really interesting, particularly when it comes like that intergenerational trauma into the Jewish world, because one of these strategies is moving out of the body into either the intellectual and being really, really, 
smart and living in our heads as being brilliantly intellectual, or alternatively, into the spiritual, even beyond the head, into the world beyond. And so these are strategies that help us survive the, that early pain of having to, of, of not being able to connect, of having the experience of connection being really painful. Another kind of these strategies is the sense of, um, well, nobody responded to my needs. You know, I'm, I'm a baby, I'm like crying and crying and crying, and nobody's paying attention to me. And so what I learn is I don't deserve to have my own needs taken care of, but I can take care of everyone else around me. And that's how, that's going to be my, my strategy to, um, to find a place for myself, because deep down, I don't believe that I have the right to have my own needs and to have my own needs take, being taken care of. Or I need to prove my worth because I don't believe that I'm worthy in and of it myself. And so I'm going to prove my worth by overachieving. And I'm going to be the A student and I'm getting going to get into the Ivy League school and I'm going to have the brilliant career and I'm going to be the best in my job and I'm going to do all this because that's the way that I'm going to prove that I am worthwhile being in this world. And I put pressure on myself to always know more, to do more, to be better, to improve, to like achieve more and more and more. And I chose these these survival strategies, these are all um, trauma responses because I see so much of this in the Jewish community. I see it in myself and I see it so much in the Jewish community. Um, and I want to say that these strategies saved our lives. And like both as individuals, often in our families, but also as Jews. Like we've used these as a way of surviving in a world that was not so interested in us being here very often. And they've done, they've served us really well also. These strategies are not something that we necessarily want to get rid of, but they also really get in the way. They really get in the way of us being able to connect in, even know what our heart's desire truly is. It was one of the things I was really struck with over the High Holy Day liturgy just recently is how often that phrase, our heart's desire, is part of our liturgy and all of the petitions that we are bringing before God that please fulfill our heart's desires for the good. And these strategies get in the way of us actually being able to do that because we become the glasses through which we see the world. We don't even know that these are beliefs. We, we believe, well, this is just the way that it is. This is just the way that it is. But I'm here to tell you that it's not. <laughs> that the life force, the chiyut, which is another way of talking about God, about divinity, about healing, about the yearning to be fully in this world, fully alive, fully ourselves, fully that authentic peace, that is always in us. No matter how much we've gone through, no matter how much we shame ourselves, no matter how much we think that we're bad, no matter how much we think it's always going to be this way, the life force flows with us always and moves us towards greater healing. And one of the ways, there are many aspects of the healing, but one of it, one of the ways is to 
start noticing and building greater capacity for those feelings that I mentioned before that the child feels, the protest, the rage, the grief that was too much for the nervous system of a child that is actually not too much for the adult or the adult has the capacity to, to build capacity to hold those feelings. So very often, we use our strategies when those feelings start coming up and we don't know what to do with those feelings, particularly anger and sadness, particularly anger and sadness. And I also just want to say that this is a very interesting thing to look at because often families have systems where anger might be allowed, but sadness is not. And so when we were feeling actually a lot of grief or something, we come in as being very irritated and angry, but underneath that anger might be a great deal of grief and sadness or the other way around where the default is to be sad and to shut down and to feel depressed but, or anxious even, but underneath it is a ton of anger that needs to be expressed. And so we can, um, like through, through different modalities, we can come to be able to hold and to host our feelings, those underlying states, to be able to express them, to hear their messages so that we can learn from them. And then we don't have to resort to those strategies automatically. We can choose them if we want them, but we don't need them because we can hold our feelings differently than we could when we were a child. So from here then, I wanna come back to Shalom Aleichem and to show how Shalom Aleichem can be a, um, a model for healing some of this developmental trauma and for dealing with these strategies that, are the, that get in the way of us being able to really come to our heart's desire. So the messengers, the, these, these angels are messengers from the life force itself, from the divine inside of us that is taking form in this human life, in this bodily incarnation through each of us. And the messengers take the form of feelings. Remember we said that they come, that the, the, the tradition says that these malachim come from the world of Yitzhirah, from the world of emotions. So these messengers, these feelings, come to us, even in unpleasant feelings, even that could be dangerous feelings, like anger or sadness, that when we were younger, threatened that attachment bond. And so we weren't able to, to listen to them. And we developed all these different strategies instead. But as we come into our full adult consciousness, we can have the space to say, yes, peace be upon you, messengers. Peace be upon you, difficult emotions. Come in. Come in. I have space for you. I can hold you. I can greet you. And then, most importantly, I can ask you to bless me. Because these feelings are there with important messages that we need to hear. And when we hear them, it brings greater blessing, greater goodness, greater um, information, greater our own authenticity, which in some ways really is one of the greatest blessings that we have. 
And then once we've received the message, we've received the blessing, we can ask them to leave. We don't need these emotions to stay and they don't have to stay. They've delivered their message and they can depart. And they can leave us in a place of greater peace, greater wholeness, greater goodness, greater thriving, greater in a place of being able to recognize and realize our heart's desire, greater connection to ourselves, to God, and to each other. All right. So I'm going to pause here. I'm going to stop sharing. Awesome. Love this, Rabbi Goldstein. Thank you so much. So awesome. Friends, we'd love to hear from you if you have uh, questions to, to ask. Please, comments, questions. Um, Feel free to unmute yourself or to write in the chat if you wish. Yes, Esther. I don't know if you remember me, but... I do remember you. Absolutely. It's wonderful I, to see my, you. I mean, name was Carol when I knew you. Yes. And... Uh, I just uh, was deeply moved by your uh, what you said or your metaphor, the angelic messengers that come to us. And to be succinct, I have repaired and healed from intergenerational early childhood trauma. And I just don't know if this is of interest, but I've worked very closely with many different people, you know, Gabor Mate and Peter Levine and Bessel and <laughs> wonderful crew. And a person I particularly wanted to just offer the thought, if it's useful, I've worked very closely with Daniel Siegel. Yeah. from the Mindsight Institute. And his books, the one, there are many different books. He's an attachment, his early work was attachment. Re, he's an attachment researcher. And some of his early, some of his books, and the ones that I've been particularly aware of, The Whole Brain Child yeah. and Parenting from the Inside Out, you're yeah. probably very familiar with them. But I just, uh, things you said were, were so conciliant with the thinking that I've learned from the last 15, 20 years from Dan. It was very moving for me. Thank you so much. And I'm so glad that you are mentioning these names. And you might want to put them in the chat so that people can, can look at them. I mean, this, oh. this, this field of... Develop, of, of trauma, shock trauma and developmental trauma healing is really new. And there are amazing pioneers um, who are doing extraordinary work. And it's so hopeful. It's so hopeful because it means that, you know, like you, we can, we can heal from these things. We really can. So I think it would be great if you would put Well, I think one of the yeah. most beautiful things I'll end with, which are not my words, they're Dan Siegel's words, but I've now used them in my, I've started writing my story. Repair is possible at any time. That's right, amen, amen. I mean, what a miracle that is, and it is true, yeah. And, and now the science 
is coming together with our angels of messenger, our Shalom Aleichem, that's where, where you so touched me today, because the science of neuroplasticity. Exactly. Now it's it's like the ancient messengers of our angels, of our God, of Hashem, the neuroscientists are now showing us we the ancient wisdom is uh, profound. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I think Sarah was next and then Aglaia. Beautiful. So I guess a lot of my training was from Marshall Rosenberg with the Center for Nonviolent Communication. Yeah. And what I don't hear in the connecting to the feelings and getting to message is connecting deeply to needs mm -hmm. and the needs that we are trying, whether successfully or unsuccessfully, to meet by our actions mm -hmm. and how important that's been for me in understanding others, as well as being able to be compassionate with myself and understanding how to move forward. So I'm wondering yeah. whether you could address needs and the component of needs in all of this. Absolutely, yes, thank you. It's a great question. And I really admire um, the work that you're, that you're doing. I think it's really um, in, extremely impactful. And the whole, from what I understand, you can correct me if I'm wrong, the idea of like, what, what is it that I need and what is it that you need? And it might take a different form than the, the agenda that we thought we were bringing to the table, but we really want to focus on like, what, what are our needs and making sure our needs get met. Well, and often just that our needs are often exactly the same yeah. because there are only so many human needs, but we're looking at them from our own very narrow viewpoint and not recognizing there are thousands of strategies yeah. to meet these needs and that our needs can be met. Um, and if they can't, then we come back to the table and find a new strategy. Yeah, yeah. So I think what, develop, what de this um, approach towards developmental trauma would say about needs is actually one of the, the, the developmental stages, the second developmental stage is about um, being able to, um, to express our needs. And so, from, and so this developmental stage from about birth to about six months old is about developing the capacity to know that I have needs, and in, in the case of optimal development, that my needs will be met, and that I have a right to ask for my needs. And so when that, when that is disrupted through developmental trauma, then we shut down our ability to have needs. And so I think that's one of the things that then ends up getting really complicated. It's like if we can say what our needs are, um, then we can do the amazing work that you're doing. But if we don't, if, if we shame ourselves and believe that we actually don't have needs, or the only way that our, our needs can be met is by taking care of everybody, everybody else's needs, that's, that's a really powerful strategy that comes that, for, that people develop when that, um, when that level of development is not adequately supported. And so in fact, when I do a, a NARM session with somebody, the first question I always ask 
is what would you like for yourself out of our time together today? And I have to tell you, the vast majority of people do not know how to answer that question because we are so detached from what our own needs are. And part of the process then is, an, is it just a curious exploration of like what's getting in the way of me knowing what my needs actually are. Yeah, so that's very, very important. Okay, I don't know if this is gonna be helpful for anyone though, but um, speaking of um, you know angelic messengers and stuff like that, it does happen. Because in my experience, it was, um, you know, I go through off and on time periods when I'm reading the Torah and stuff like that. And when I'm reading the Torah a lot, it does weird things to me. Like I, I just, my mind opens in a lot of ways. So you're talking about um, the person who retreats, you know, moves out of the body and into intellect and everything. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, so this was a few months ago, but I was driving along and I was remembering something that I had told people that I had read Les Miserables, like, you know, the whole book and everything. And I thought, and I thought about all these other, like, you know, books that I've read and everything. And I thought, okay, so why did I read a 1400 page book? And all of a sudden, like, you know, this answer came to me, like, well, why do people shoot heroin? And I was like, what? But then I was like, that is exactly what the answer is. Like, you know, it's basically, so I will say this though, um, just to, cause I don't want to talk about me too much though, but long story short though, it will work. It's just, it's going to work in a lot of whack ways that you're not expecting. And you have to be open for the whack ways that you're not expecting. I think that last piece is so, I love that so much because like one of the things that I often find in both the trauma healing work and in spiritual work is that it's surprising. Yeah. It's not what you expect. Mm -hmm. And I think that if we, if we can allow ourselves to be in a greater state of curiosity, mm -hmm. not knowing all the answers up front, um, then, then we can learn. Mm -hmm. And that's very hard for many people. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I'm noticing some things in the chat and I, I can't talk and <laughs> read the chat at the same time. Um, so I just want to turn to that for just a moment. Um, <laughs> yes, Saul, thank you, Les Mis is legal in most states. Thank you. <laughs> um, and um, Esther, thank you for those great resources. Um, um, yeah, so then, um, it, is less expensive than heroin. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, yeah. So I just, I really want to resonate with sort of this accept, embrace, and release the, um, the emotions associated. It, and it's not even necessarily associated with the trauma. It's like, what's happening right now? What is the feeling that's coming up in me now? Which is, shaped by what happened in the past because that's how I develop the patterns of how I relate to it but moment to moment because there is a mindfulness part of this as well uh, mindfulness is very very helpful so um there was a question of what is the developmental model that I'm referring to so um and there was a question about Eric Erickson other developmental um, psychologists so NARM is based on the work of um, Wilhelm Reich um, and his different levels of, um, of development. Um, although NARM is Wilhelm Reich layers, um, stages of development are pretty um, pathologizing. <laughs> um, NARM tends not to be as pathologizing. 
um, which is one of the things I like about it. Um, yes, and a lot of mindfulness and Jewish mindfulness practices. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, Baruch. Uh, thank you so much, Rabbi Lisa, for, um, you know, Shalom Aleichem, the song and, and the traditional melody, I often think is that traditional melody is one of the most beautiful ever. And I um, use it almost every Shabbat, sometimes in leading services. And I often wonder about how to um, make that strange poetry meaningful to myself and to others. And you've really given me a lot there. Uh, just a couple thoughts. One, when you were talking about um, the decision of a, of a young child that when, when, who's not able to get their needs met, that I have done something wrong, or that when, when there's environmental trauma that I have done something wrong, and it, it just really brought up for me the, the, the Jewish national response to the, ex, the Babylonian exile or the destruction of the temple and the prophet yeah. saying, you know, it's because we were bad. That's right. And, and so we have that kind of trauma kind of built into our, yeah. our creation myth. And, and so I wonder how you feel we need to deal with that as, as a people. And, and, and then the other question I had was, you know, these, these overachieving and the, the intellectual uh, achievements and, and, and so forth that we, that we bring as, as responses to these um, unpleasant realities are actually um, wonderful in a lot of ways. And we wouldn't want to lose those. So are, is there a danger of that if we, you know, if we have what it, I forget what you call it, but um, optimal, if, if we could, if we could bring optimal development to all children, for example. So yeah. Yeah, beautiful. Shamati, thank you. Um, so, um, so I actually think that there's so much about Jewish tradition that has developed as a response to the traumas of our past. Um, so much of it. And I would even think that some of the ways in which we are, that we put so much pressure on ourselves. Like I have, so I've done, I've been in the world of Jewish education for like over 30 years. I have never met a Jewish person who isn't a little bit ashamed that they don't know more and that other people know more and that they should know more. And like that, that is a, as far as I know, that is a universal experience. And I think that that, that the kind of judgment and pressure that we put on ourselves and others about how observant we are, how much we know, or how are, how, like all of that, I think the roots of that are a trauma response. That if we only knew more, if we could only justify ourselves more, if we could only be, be more, 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 then these terrible things would not have happened to us. And as you say, like that's actually written into our liturgy. Right, because of our sins, we our temple was destroyed. Like that's that's the Musaf liturgy. So, I feel a tremendous amount of compassion for us and our ancestors when when I see this. That this was the way that we knew how to survive, and it worked. As you're saying, like these strategies have worked in so many ways. 
the difficulty is, is the suffering that they, that they bring us and others for that matter. And I think that as we go through the healing process, what happens is we realize that there are different ways of seeing. So we might want to, we might want to see things through the lens of the strategy that if I really push myself, I'm going to get someplace that I wouldn't get to if I didn't push myself. But I have that strategy in my back pocket. It's not the only way that I know how to relate to myself in the world. And I can take it off, say on Shabbat, and just like really relax into being blessed by these, by this environment of good food and loving company and, and not feel like I have to do anything for it to be anything other than it just is. So, um, so we don't want to get rid of the strategies. We don't want to get rid of anything. I mean, part of the trauma is shutting off a part of ourselves. So we want to invite everybody to the Shabbat table, the strategies, the child consciousness, the adult consciousness, the shames, all of it is welcome. And that is truly, um, that is healing. Thank you. Um, I see Lauren had her hand up. My question is, um, to me, it's so obvious. I mean, I'm a child of a Holocaust survivor, grew up. I'm from Toronto is mostly a, a survivor community. My nephew feels that he's also experiencing some kind of intergenerational trauma, and yet he's the next gen. Um, many Mizrahim who came here, I mean, they, they fled uh, with like one suitcase and right. it was very difficult. How, how, how can we stop this intergenerational trauma? Um, you know, it's, and, and living in Israel, oh my God, everybody there is traumatized and I don't see any way of, of getting around it, but, but what can we have in place that the next generations don't have to live with all this anxiety and depression? Yeah. It's such a great and important question. And um, I think that part of what we have to do um, is to do our own healing work. And really each one of us looking at ourselves um, to see where do these patterns manifest in us? How can we bring healing to our own families? Um, and I think that we're just at the beginning point to think about this specifically in a Jewish context. You know, I think that for a long time, there was sort of like, no, no, we're okay. We're everything together. And we're just going to like move forward. And I think one of the things that's been happening over the past maybe five, 10 years is realizing, well, actually, we might not be so okay as we thought. Mm -hmm. um, and as, you know, anti-Semitism is reawakening, and we notice some of the existential fear that also arises, um, that we realize, oh, actually, we have work to do. So this is something that I'm very, very interested in. I'm really interested in looking at um, not just like, I, I'm very interested in being a practitioner one-on-one, -on -one, but I'm also interested in thinking about like what, how can we bring this more into the educational realm, into our communities, um, like that, that work also has to happen. And I'm not the only person who's interested in this, thank goodness. Um, I'm actually, you know, there, there are many people and not surprisingly, Many of the people who are pioneers in their field are themselves Jews, um, which, you know, is, is not so surprising. Other, there are other people also, obviously, you know, the trauma is not a Jewish um, 
you know, I think every group has some kind of a trauma because we live in a world that is um, really based on, um, like if you go far enough back, there's plenty of trauma to go around for all of us. Thank you so much. We may be, well, we're right about at our time. If there are no other questions, um, then I will thank Rabbi Lisa Goldstein so much for being here. It was great to learn with you. Um, and of course, I want to thank you all for attending and learning with us. Um, and I want to let everybody know about some events we have coming up next week, uh, next Thursday, October 27th, we have Rabbi David Wolpe coming in. Uh, so the lecture will be available in person and virtually. Um, so that is at 7 p.m. Pacific uh, for the lecture for both in-person and on Zoom. Uh, and then on November 3rd, we have Rabbi Joseph Ozarowski, I hope I'm saying his name right, at 1 p.m. Pacific uh, virtually for his class on Nadav and Avihu, a pastoral study in bereavement. So hope that we will see you there and uh, hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks again for being here. Thank you, everyone. It's really delight to be with you all. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.